And the classic one, which you'll know about very well, is the Aizuchi effect. So the Japanese person's constant nodding of their head doesn't mean yes. It just means, yes, please go on. <laughs> or yes, I'm hearing you. I mean, that's a very useful one to learn, isn't it? Because you do hear people visiting from overseas saying, well, they seemed incredibly positive. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, they were just saying, come on, get to the end of your conversation or whatever. So, so I think that's another good one. こんにちは皆さん。ビジネス・セクセス・ジャパンのポッドキャストへようこそ。Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast.This is your host, Lydia Buchelman.My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan's specific communication skills, especially in business.While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, Piece of information or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. A quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So, thanks in advance. In today's episode, I'm chatting with David Tong, a designer and owner of the London based design studio, The Division. Who has worked extensively in Asia and in particular has a long relationship with Japan. David has 30 years of experience as a designer, director, and advisor to some of the world's most successful brands. He's also a visiting professor at Kanazawa Art University in Japan. But David will share a lot more about that in today's conversation, so be sure to stick around to learn more. Before we get into the interview, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the word Hansei. Ha, n, se, i, hansei. Hansei essentially means reflection, contemplation, regret, or even repentance. Be sure to listen to my episode with Tim Sullivan to learn more about this word and why it's such a fundamental idea in Japanese culture. Today, I want to briefly highlight another important concept in Japanese business culture that David brings up during the podcast. Otoshi dokoro. O. A possible translation for otoshidokoro is the place where things fall. What it really refers to, however, is a point of compromise or common ground. So, in a business negotiation, for example, both sides should work towards this point of compromise or otoshidokoro in order to reach a consensus and preserve the relationship. But without any further delay, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and my audience. Would you mind just taking a quick moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure.、Uh, my name is David Tong, and I'm an industrial designer currently based in the UK. And、um, in case you're wondering what industrial design is, this is often a question I get asked. So it's not designing factories or that kind of industrial. Think traditionally, it's about designing anything which is mass manufactured. So, and、uh, and it's again changing these days, but it used to be much more about designing the shape, color, material, usability of a product. And it could be anything from a watch to a car to aeroplane, whatever. <laughs> so, wide range of things. So, could you tell us a little bit about your history with Japan specifically? Uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a circuitous route, really. So, I, in 1996, I moved to San Francisco 
to work with a very well-known design company called IDEO, IDEO Product Development. And um, at the same time, they had just opened an office in Tokyo. And so not many months after moving to San Francisco from London, I found myself on a flight to Japan. And I think like many people who go there, particularly not solely creative people, but particularly for creative people, you know, it's a really fascinating place. And um, so, I, you know, I fell in love with it, really, um, after, after that visit. And then after that, I found myself very regularly going back and forth to, to the Tokyo office to help them out with projects. And bit by bit thought, well, I better learn a bit of Japanese if I'm going to keep doing this. And um, then, of course, bit by bit, started to understand the culture a bit more, fumble my way through the language, butcher the language is probably the best way to put it. But anyway, manage and yeah, meet more and more people, meet more companies, those kind of things. Yeah. And then around about that time, I also started to learn Japanese at a small school in San Francisco. So this was sort of beginner level Japanese, learn Hiragana Katakana the first couple of hundred kanji, that kind of thing, and uh, learn how to introduce myself and uh, deal with all of those things which at the same time seem really complicated, like kore, sore, are, things like that, which I can't believe now that that seems complex, but at the time it was, uh, you know, what's this all about? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that that's how it started. And then since then, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that's never lived permanently in Japan, but spent a lot of time there on long visits um, and so on. And I've, I think today, I stopped counting how many times, but it's been well over 100 visits to Japan since that point. So it's been a constant part of my life since then. Yeah. Thank you for sharing mm. that. So you did explain to us a little bit about what industrial design is mm, yeah but could you tell us a little bit more about the type of work you're doing right now specifically yeah so um i um in 2003 with my wife we were still working in living in san francisco at that time but we founded a company called the division and part of the reason was that we'd always worked in quite large companies and we just had enough of that and wanted to do something smaller which was more related and closer to our clients and the client base is almost well probably about 80 90 percent uh japanese clients so we we work with them in a number of different ways the the most straightforward way is just on on design projects so for example a company like soji rushi who make flasks or in Japan, they call them mahobin, so magic, magic flasks. Uh, we might help them just create the new shape of a flask, which, for example, most recently we designed for the European market. So in that case, it's about taking some elements of Japanese culture and using them to communicate and design in a way that's appealing for European consumers. That, that might be a most straightforward way. We also do it for the Japanese market as well. But lately, we find ourselves doing a lot more of working with companies to educate them in new processes, new ways of doing things, uh, typically Western ways of thinking about design, Western ways of thinking about brand, those kind of things. So it's, it's slowly, probably with age more than anything, and a little bit more wisdom, it's, it's becoming much more advising and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. 
you know, that's a sort of spectrum of things that we do and an awful lot in between <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm, I'm sure. Yeah. So would you mind digging a little bit more into how you kind of take those elements of Japanese culture and try to make mm-hmm. them appealing to other countries? What does that look like? Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. It also goes the other way as well. I mean, lately, I mean, particularly with the, the world we're living in at the moment, where basically I can't get on an aeroplane. And as much as we all love Zoom, to communicate in a meaningful way with a company is quite difficult you know, to do that. So we're actually switching our work to help American and UK-based companies to export to Japan. But to answer your question, so we work with, well, Zoji Rush is a good example. Uh, Toto is a good example. Shiseido is another good example where we try to help them understand the elements of Japanese culture, which we as Europeans or Americans, English-speaking country people, I suppose. What are, what are the elements that they understand to be Japanese? So, which of course is a, is a naturally more limited set of cultural elements, if you like, than the Japanese themselves might, might understand to be Japanese. So, but in relation to design, it's often about craft, it's often about material or shape or, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, so in the case of a company like Zoji Rishi, in the, in the last piece of work we did for them, uh, we designed a, a flask for them. And the idea, the basic idea of the flask was they would use the shape of Byobu, so folding screens. And so it's a very faceted shaped flask and it's using materials, you know, reds and golds and bronzes and those kind of colours which reflect a little bit of, reflect on, I should say, Japanese materials. And then at the same time, we also designed the exhibit stand for them, which was a relaunch for them in Europe. And so the um, the exhibit uh, was using a lot of lattice, wooden lattice form, which, as you know very well, if you wander around a place like Kyoto or other area, you see a lot of this lattice, this kind of use of wood, make a kind of open framework. And again, that's another thing which has become understood to be a sort of element of Japanese craft and architecture outside of Japan. Another example might be a company like Toto, who, as you probably know, uh, have these incredibly technology-enabled bathrooms. So they're making washlet toilets, these incredible things that not only measure your weight, which is a bit scary, really, but also automatically flush, automatically do all of these kind of things that they do which is still, you know, relatively new outside of Japan. So in, in their case, we would, we're helping them to understand the aspects of technology which will be acceptable to people outside of Japan, but without removing the sort of unique quality that those, those products have and that are very uniquely Japanese. Think about the other way, uh, exporting into Japan, then the, you know, we do a lot of work in the consumer electronics area. So often from the Japanese perspective, when they look at an American product or a European product, they think it's probably a little bit too heavy, a bit too big, a bit too overpowered for their environments, for their homes or for the way that they use things. So we do a lot of uh, user-centered research. So 
ethnographic research, visiting people's homes in Japan, looking up where, how they use products, and therefore to help the American or European company make some decisions about the kinds of technology that they're using and the way that they design uh, products for that market. So that's a sort of, you know, the sort of mixture of things that we do. It's a sort of, I, I, would call, I mean, in a sense, it's interpretation, you know, it's a kind of cultural interpretation or design interpretation, if you like, uh, different to the kind that you might be doing <laughs> in terms of language, but, but at the same time, probably quite similar. I love that yeah. idea of design interpretation because you're taking different concepts yeah. and doing your best yeah, to very translate sim- them. A very, yeah. very, a very, very simple example might mm-hmm. be back in the t- early 2000s, I was working with Dell Computer and they were making these desktop computers in the US and wanted to, at that point, were trying to expand into Japan and they had these, you know, these quite big desktop computers, which are you know, actually big for an American's desk, never mind a Japanese person's desk, but they wanted to ship them to Japan. And of course, you put one of those on the average desk, cubicle desk in a Japanese office, and you know, there's, <laughs> there's no room left. So immediately you realize, oh, we need, to, we need to do something about this. We need to design something smaller, uh, et cetera, that you know, fits that environment. Otherwise we won't sell anything. So, so yes, it is a, that kind of in, cultural interpretation, but also fun, f- functionality and usability and all of those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, naturally, I'm, as people, we tend to think of culture as more of an interpersonal thing, but tend to mm. over really overlook how culture has such a strong impact on environment as well. That's a great thing. Yeah, 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 it is. I mean, there's some really curious ones. I don't know whether, you know, kind of getting too much into detail but there's some I mean so for example we've done a lot of a lot of work in the area of toothbrush design and those kinds of things um when you we've done a lot of work with a company called Sunstar which are based in Takatsuki um, who make gum brand products which you probably know in the US as well as Japan so over there if you think about power toothbrushes which have become very common I guess in the US and Europe so you know I think a lot of people are now using these electric toothbrushes when Japan if you talk to people uh, because they feel these uh, imported products they think that they're very strong and they worry that they're going to damage their gums so they would tend to buy a Philips or Braun toothbrush but only use it for a special event so they wouldn't use it every day they'd use it before going to a special evening out or concert or something like that which is really interesting isn't it we would use tend to use those things every day because we think they're better for your oral care but over there they see it as a special <laughs> a, a special activity so something like that would obviously really impact the sales of you know and a, a new product in that market so um so it's really important to go and find out what's yeah. actually going on yeah, it's very fascinating to see how everybody's perceptions of other people's cultures interplay. It's very mm, yeah. interesting to see. Mm. But obviously, your company works with clients from all over the world doing mm. that sort of design interpretation as well. But yeah. in your opinion, what makes the Japanese market unique when you are trying to introduce uh, products into Japan or when you're trying to make products? for companies in Japan in the Japanese market? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think there's the things that we've spoken about, the cultural differences or the usability differences or space differences, those, those kind of things. I think the, the biggest thing, though, is in, the, in working with Japanese companies, the, the, I suppose, the expectations are quite different to working with a European or, or an American company. And I think that's very much about the different cultures that exist within the companies and also the sort of if you like the educational um, differences so I think when you work especially as a consultant and I think maybe there's a, a bit of this exists if you're doing consultant work anywhere and and that is that it's the consultant's job to bring something new or something fresh or you know whatever it is but I think in Japan there's a an added element to this. I mean, probably as you know, you know, Japanese like new stuff. You know, they don't. You know, they kind of. You know, you can connect it to all sorts of things like wabi sabi and all of these kind of things. But essentially, they like new things, and that's actually quite challenging for design because I think if you're a um, European or American educated designer, you you tend to be trained to think that a level of consistency or the, a slow evolution of something is the better way to do something. Therefore, you often don't see a big need to keep changing things, to keep having new things all of the time. Whereas in Japan, they will expect something completely new. And if they don't see it, they'll probably be a little bit unhappy. And so it's actually really challenging because as a designer, you tend to want to sort of develop a design and a brand slowly over a period of time, because that's a way to build equity in a brand. And I think if you look at the most successful Western companies, and Apple's a good example, they've got a very clear design identity, or if you take a car company, it might be BMW or whatever, Volkswagen is another good example. They don't change overnight, you know, they don't, they don't, have you know a black thing one day and white thing the next day but in japan that's kind of the expectation <laughs> actually there should be this big change so that that's really challenging thing to deal with and it's a, something fundamental i think in in the difference in thinking so you can if you're not careful you can have these situations where people can get quite ha- unhappy very quickly because they don't let we don't we don't have a shared understanding of where it is we're trying to go um, so you have to do quite a bit of work around that, <laughs> around that particular point. Mm. Not sure that does answer your question. I'm not sure it does directly, but <laughs> no, it does mm. because mm. it brings up something that I'm going to be speaking in very broad strokes. But in yeah. general, when we think about Western companies, we tend to associate them with trying to be innovative and making new things. Mm. Whereas if you look at Japanese companies, the stereotype is that they are more iterative. They try to make gradual improvements, but it's interesting mm. that on the consumer side, it's different. Yeah. I mean, but, and, and you also get this, I, th- I think you're right in general, there's a quicker pace in innovation, I think with an American company or European company compared to Japanese. And, and I think that's a lot about process. I, I, I think, you know, American companies in particular, Silicon Valley in particular is, is very good at um, creating processes that allow you to get somewhere very quickly. And it's very business oriented. And also inside those companies, the different groups which need to come together to make something quickly do that 
in Japan, they don't. They still, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, there's still this kind of silo-based kind of way that companies are constructed, which slows them down, which is, you know, as you said, where you get to this iterative thing, this, this iterative way of um, developing things. So it does seem really slow. But like many things in Japan, there's also these very conflicting things. So people want things new, but then they might say, well, actually, that's too unique. You know, we don't want to, be, <laughs> you know, slow down a bit. We don't want you to be too, we don't want to go too crazy. You know, we want, we, you know, we want, we, we want to be unique, but only just a bit unique. You know? So there are all, as, as I'm sure you, you, you've come across in Japan as well. You know, there's, there's so many sort of conflicted viewpoints when you, when you're working with companies. There. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so important to hear a lot of different people's points of view on working in yeah, Japan. Yeah, yeah. So are there any other things that you believe individuals who want to do consulting or advising work in Japan should know before they try to break into that industry? It's, well, I think the first thing is it, it's, it's slow. So I think to, you know, relationships are really important there. And I'm sure you've heard this before from your other speakers relationships are incredibly important it took me about four years visiting meeting visiting meeting before we had our first project there and then it was sort of like a tsunami after that you know with that particular client you know we had uh, this this one i'm talking about matsushita or panasonic as it's called more broadly, so we yeah we spent about four years meeting with them, and then then there was a huge amount of work over a five or so year period, and same with other clients, Nissan and Brother and others. Uh, so it just takes a long while, and it's a lot of meeting and greeting and those kind of things. Uh, so that that's one thing. I, mean, I think some people imagine you can go for one or two trips, and all of a sudden you're going to be you know you're going to have lots of work but you know that would be incredibly rare and incredibly lucky i think it's possible to have a piece of work and you think well this is it this is the beginning and then you know nothing that happens a lot i think so if you don't show the commitment you're not going to get the reward i think as you're a, a language person i think there's a level of japanese which is maybe enough versus some sort of level of fluency you know, I have some fr- friends who've lived in Japan a long time who are incredibly fluent who who think that there's a kind of sweet spot, if you like, in terms of how much you should, you know, how far you should go in terms of your language. I mean, it's an, it's an individual thing, isn't it? And uh, but, uh, but I think definitely to invest your time in, in some level of Japanese really, you know, really has a reward because people just simply feel comfortable. And even, you know, even if they have pretty good English there, as I'm sure you've come across many times, that they're more than happy for you to stumble along in whichever <laughs> level of Japanese you have, rather than them using their English. So I think that's really worth doing. And even if it's only enough conversation, for, perhaps, as you know, the business conversation is, is difficult, but even if it's just enough Japanese for the, you know, the bar conversation afterwards, then that goes a long way. One of the other things I would say, and I think you've, I think you've probably had this in some of your other podcasts is, uh, you know, be yourself. Don't, don't, don't try and be Japanese. Don't try to do what they do. And in particular in design and craft and those areas, they're very good. You know, they're very good at making things. They really know what they're about. 
if you are being hired as a consultant, you know, they want something else and, and they want you to be you. And one of the things that we do really well with is just by being honest with them, you know, so I think that's, um, I mean, that's perhaps the global consulting thing, but you don't hire someone from outside to tell you what you already, <laughs> well, sometimes you do hire them to tell you what you already know, but you want it from a different viewpoint, you know, so uh, I think in Japan, that's just the same. And, and one of the other, I was thinking about this earlier, one of the other things is I think the, I don't know about the US these days, but particularly in the UK, that there's a tendency to listen to younger people more than older people. And I think in Japan, there is a respect for older people. So I think, we, we, you know, wisdom does have a value there that, you know, they will listen to, to you if you're a little bit older. Uh, but, but if you are younger, then I think just being strong and being yourself and be confident about what you've got to say is also important. And they, the Japanese tend to respect that, I think. Besides... <laughs> some individual level of Japanese depending on your needs mm. and then also obviously yeah. patience. Are there any other yeah. skills you think would be useful for patience people hoping to break into Japan? Yeah, I, I think in terms of in terms of my industry in design, I think I think the big the big ones are around how designers are treated. So in Japan you have a lot of in-house product designers, so they, they work for companies like Sony or Panasonic or Nissan, whoever, and there's generally hundreds of them. And generally speaking, their role is to, well, you know, design new stuff. But historically, that's been very much just about the shape of things, the color of things, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Whereas in the US and Europe, uh, design is very much more about uh, a more of a holistic viewpoint it's it's about the strategy it's about the process it's about a sort of long view of things you realize that when you work with companies and when they're asking for more and more ideas and you're thinking hang on a minute we need to have a a, a big strategic plan about where we're going then there's this point that uh, somehow these things are not quite rubbing along together and and it's just to do with how designers are viewed in japan within a company and how designers are educated. So that's, I think that's a, it took me a long time. I think I had a, one of those haha moments at some point. I, and I remember what it was. I think it was in a bar in Osaka somewhere with these people from Panasonic. I just had this sudden realization of what was going on. And I sketched it out on a napkin, um, what I was thinking. And they sketched out what they was thinking. I realized these two napkins don't really match. <laughs> so that's one thing. And one of the other things, again, related to design is that, you know, unusually when you think of Japan, you think of this highly technologically developed nation, uh, which it is. But if we think about digital technologies, i.e. developing services and apps and those kind of things, it's incredibly, it's getting better, but it's incredibly slow compared to the, well, in particular compared to Silicon Valley, but also um, to Europe as well. So those, those things are always surprising. Are they negative? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. You, you can come away from a situation and think, well, that's ridiculous. But then again, you also have to think, well, actually they're doing okay. So, you know, maybe it's not so bad. So, <laughs> but they're, ju they're just things to be aware of. They're just things that you need to think about when you're working with those companies. So, yeah, being yeah. open to noticing those things and then not ascribing a value to them, just acknowledging them as, oh, this is just how things are. 
I mean, you have to, sometimes you do have to check yourself and say, well, actually, you know, um, you know they're doing okay. So <laughs> perhaps it doesn't matter. It's just different, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Definitely. So I would really love to hear a little bit about your experiences working as a visiting professor in Japan. Yeah, so, well, that's been really interesting because I've done similar things over here in the UK and a little bit in the US as well. So I started to work with them, when was it, three years ago, perhaps? So three years ago. And um, basically, it's like an interface between the college and uh, sponsored projects. So they do, like a lot of universities, they do sponsored projects. And they do them with, the ones I've been involved with, I've been with a company called JSAT. TV, which is a satellite company, Sony, uh, which which everyone knows, uh, Suzuki and Hitachi. So they, of course, their interest is to work with university students to get some new ideas or new thinking. And from the student's viewpoint, it's a, it's a good way to connect with um, real life, I suppose. And then so my job is to sort of help the students interpret design briefs that they get from those manufacturers. And it's been really nice, I would say. Um, I think there's, um, the students that, I mean, they're very gifted in terms of working in more traditional ways. So from, and I suppose what I mean is from a, a craft basis. So whether that's making something or sketching something or those kind of things. But as I alluded to before, what the, the component that they really need help with is in how to think about solving design problems. So that's essentially the thing that I try to do with them. So it's simple things like, um, uh, you know, when you're designing things, you try and put your mind into the position of the user. So is it, you know, is this user 18 or is it 80 or whatever, that, that kind of thinking. And um, in addition to that, to help them plan out their projects, plan out their time, plan out, plan out the things that they need to do um, to help them create some kind of goal for what it is that they're trying to achieve. So that's roughly what I do with them. Outside of that, Kanazawa is such a lovely place to, <laughs> to, to visit. And, you know, it's got such a rich history of craft and, 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 and so on. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just always a pleasure to try and work with them. And they, they also, they generally have a, an exhibition of what they do, which is in, usually in Tokyo, in Roppongi. There's a, a place there called the Axis Building, which is an exhibition space, which is owned by Bridgestone, the big tyre company. But they put lots of design and um, art exhibits on there. And so every year there's usually a big kind of, you know, kind of event and video made and all of these kind of things of the work that we do. So that's, yeah, that's roughly what I do. But of course, this past year, it's, uh, you know, impossible, unfortunately, to be in Kanazawa. So we've been doing, uh, like everybody else, trying our best, muddling along with Zoom and those other things (laughs) to try and make it happen. So I'm looking forward to next year, will it be, hopefully? Yes, hopefully Hopefully. next year. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Definitely. Fingers and lots of other things crossed. Yes, just cross everything. So based on your experiences then, can you explain a little bit about how the Japanese design education process itself might be different compared to the US and the UK? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we've spoken about it a bit, but I think it's very craft focused. So it's about developing the skills that you need in order to make something. So that might be just, you know, model making something or making a piece of ceramic or um, hammering a piece of metal or stitching something together, those kind of things. Whereas the education, which to be honest was, you know, when I was at university here, it was probably very similar. But at the same time here, there's also been a, a kind of long history of design as a business tool so that is also very much uh, part of the education here so it's how does design connect to business more broadly so how can design help a business understand what they should be designing in the future how can design help navigate uh, technology how can design or how can designers sorry understand users and the kinds of things that they need in the product and so on and then you know, how do you bring all those together into a, a product of some kind or other? And of course, more lately these days, it's also um, user interface design and UX, you know, user experience design and so on, which has become very much part of the, of the overall package. So I think that those, I mean, it's starting to happen in Japan, but it's slow, in my opinion anyway, it's slow compared to what's happening here in, in, in the US. So that, that, those, are, those are the main, difference, um, main differences. Having said that, you know, they're very quick to learn. And I think, you know, to go back to the folks at Kanazawa, you know, they're a real delight to work with because they, you know, they've got um, a real passion for making, which is, I think, you know, a, a, a great aspect of uh, Japanese culture. If you're a craft person, but if you're a design, <laughs> designer working inside a big company, then... Um, or working with big companies, then you need to understand these other elements um, as well in order to get things moving, in order to get things made. Yeah. So then maybe as a result of those educational differences, if an American was hoping to hire a Japanese designer, are there, can you think of any things that they might want to be aware of ahead of time or might want to watch out for if they have experience working with Western designers? And might come in assuming yeah. it will be similar. I, I I think it would only be good. I, I think it would the the results can only be good. I mean we've had, well we always have a, a Japanese designer working with us and the results have always for us been good for for a few reasons. One is creative capability if you like. So if you've got a design company, smallish design company, then it's you know can be all hands on deck, meaning that, you know, you need to have capability to do everything. So from having a great new idea to making it, and Japanese designers are very capable in that way. And then also for us, because we do a lot of work for Japanese companies or with Japanese companies, then of course their language capabilities, etc., are also incredibly valuable to us as well. So I think, I think, so I think, it can only be a good thing. And I think all of those other things, those those business things, they will quickly, you know, pick up if they're, you know, in and, in and around that environment. I think they will pick up very quickly. Uh, really adaptable, capable people. So do you have any personal examples of maybe a communication breakdown in Japan that you've experienced due to culture? Communication breakdown, actual breakdown. Again, probably around um, expectations more than anything. I've had lots of sort of language breakdowns. <laughs> probably yeah, that comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Well, so many of those. I can't. I just. Um, uh, fortunately, I'm not one of the people that worries about them. I just have to. Okay, move on. <laughs> um, 
I think I think mainly expectation breakdowns, as I mentioned earlier, I think those would be the things really that often when you're working with a company, and particularly if it's a smaller one, their expectation is that you're going to find this thing which is you know fundamentally going to change their company for them. And, and sometimes the answer is, well, keep on doing what you're doing. Or the answer is, we just need to make a small change here and there in, in order to make you know X, Y, or Z happen. So. Um, I think those are the I think those are the big things from their side. They might be the might be the big things. The other side of it is probably around decision making. So inside a medium or large Japanese company, you know, the decision making is a what's that word? Labyrinthine. <laughs> Very difficult. It's kind of at times. At times you see projects just die just purely because they're not able to make, you know, the right decisions internally in the right time. And that's really, really frustrating, you know, because you'll see other companies probably on a similar path having the same idea at the same time and they get it done. And the company you're working with doesn't get it done. You know, those are, those are perhaps a tricky thing. And there's that great, I've learned a few, I've got a couple of good business terms for you. One is, which are quite useful to not necessarily know how to say, but to understand the meaning. One of them is do do magori, do 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 magori, uh, which you'll really, I mean, if you're working with a company and you've got basically continuous conversation, there's no decision point. It just keeps going round and round and round and round and round. So probably you don't want to say that necessarily in the daytime to the boss that you're working with, but maybe in the bar, it's okay to discuss it. <laughs> oh, this is what's happening. Um, and then the other, and then the other one is Otoshi Dokoro, which is compromise or where things land. Um, and I think that's a very useful one to learn, uh, depending on the company you're working with. But that's also an incredibly useful phrase when you're working with a Japanese company, you know, trying to find this point. And yeah. Yeah, also, I think regionally you get those different terms. You know, so I think if you're working with companies in Osaka, I've always found that they're the way I try to think of it is that that's very much a sort of trading place. So this compromise point is, you know, you know, something which you come across quite a lot with companies that are based in that area. Whereas in Tokyo, it's, a, a, you know, the sort of decision making is a, is, a, is a little bit different compared to that region. You know? Yeah, it's definitely mm. important to be aware that the business culture in Tokyo may not be universal throughout all of Japan. No, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think it is. Yeah. I think it is. A, it's a re, you know, perhaps regionally different. It's company size as well. There, there are a bunch of other very useful phrases as well, but we probably ought not to talk about them. <laughs> yeah. Another time. <laughs> Great. People will learn them. <laughs> yeah, you will learn them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've had a lot of really good and useful takeaways so far in the conversation. But if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business, and they didn't yeah. really have time to learn much about the country or the culture. Mm. What would you want them to learn before they got on the plane? Oh, that's 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 a good that's a really good one. I think at least learning how to say hello is a is you know a good a good thing to do because it just shows in any language, isn't it? Because it just shows you know respect for the other culture, doesn't it? I mean, for I mean, I still can't get my head around the fact that you know many people living in Tokyo still haven't really got around to learning Japanese. So I really I really can't understand that myself. So I'm the kind of person that wants to you know at least have some basic capability. So that I think that's one thing, and um, 
Patience is another one. And the, and the classic one, which you'll know about very well, is the Aizuchi effect. So the, the constant nodding, the, the Japanese person's constant nodding of the head doesn't mean yes. It just means, yes, please go on. <laughs> or yes, I'm hearing you. I mean, that's a very useful one to learn, isn't it? Because you do hear. I have heard uh, people visiting from overseas say, well, they seemed incredibly positive. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, they were just saying, come on, get to the end of your, <laughs> get to the end of your conversation or whatever. So, so I think that's another good one. But yeah, and try, try, try and enjoy it, I think. It's a, it's a great place to visit and to go there and not to enjoy it for what it is would seem, you know, that just seems terrible to fly in and out and not really understand anything or not be able to absorb anything of that culture would be a real shame wouldn't it I think anyway yeah it definitely would there's of course important things to learn ahead of time but probably one of the other most important things is just to enjoy your time there like what you said because Mm. it's easy to get very stressed out about doing everything perfectly when you get to Japan Mm. relaxing is an important thing too (laughs) although it's much easier now I mean I I must remember you know, when I first visited in 96, there was almost no English. It's not that long ago, is it? But it's it's changed incredibly quickly. So I think for visitors these days, it's actually quite easy to get by. As I mentioned, I think people who live in Tokyo can probably survive without, well, they do survive with, you know, very little uh, Japanese. So I think as a visitor, it is much easier these days, isn't it, to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. It's completely doable, I think. Yeah. Was there anything else that you feel like we didn't get a chance to discuss? Yeah, I mean, around language itself, as you as you know very well, it's uh, well, it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? I think is what I would say about it. People often ask me, you know, how long you've been studying Japanese? <laughs> it just feels like the whole of my life, really. <laughs> uh, so. Having started in around 97 or 98, I still, you know, to this day, I have a tutor and I continue to learn, you know, and uh, I think it's particularly difficult if you don't live there, of course, because you don't, you know, you don't have the necessarily the day-to-day opportunity, but I still, you know, continue to do that. And so it's just a great commitment, commitment, isn't it? But it's at the same time, it's also nice when you get, you know, you're able to achieve some small goal or other, depending on what that is. So that, you know, that that side of it is um, almost, I mean, one thing that I've found is that that as a lasting part of this journey of sort of working with Japan, I've found that actually the language has almost become a separate thing. You know, I almost just, I just love doing that separately from however good or bad work is. Um, And sometimes, you know, work can be frustrating as we all know, but Somehow the interest in the culture and the continuing with language and so on is will remain, I think, until I get to some unspecified point, like all of us, where you feel like, oh, you know, I'm good enough now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. With, as with a lot of things, it's the journey, not the destination. <laughs> yeah. I, well, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a much nicer way to put it than the way I've kind of uh, just <laughs> mumbled my way through. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Nope, cliches do have their place at times. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right, yeah, they do. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I definitely learned a lot and I'm very excited to share it with my audience. So thanks again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about David and his company, The Division. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, Mata Kondo.